Hello, film fans, and uh, welcome to a special bonus episode of A Very Good Year, uh, which is not actually an episode of A Very Good Year at all. Uh, I'm Jason Bailey, and uh, my co-host across the mic and across the country from me, Michael Hull. And here's here's what the hell we're doing. Um, it's it's Christmas Eve. Uh, happy Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas Eve. Um, happy holidays, whatever you're celebrating. We decided to take the week off because the chances of you actually downloading and listening to a new podcast on Christmas Day were pretty slim. Um, but we had something uh, seasonal that we wanted to share with you. So, uh, Mike, um, what was what was the name of that that podcast we did before this one? It's totally slipped my mind. That was Ooh, something about fun, uh, fun city cinema. Fun City Cinema, that's what it was. Um, so what we did was we did a podcast called Fun City Cinema, which if you're listening to if you've heard if you're listening here and you haven't heard that one, it seems super unlikely, but uh go uh subscribe to that. There are 10 episodes there, um, each, you know, a little over an hour. Uh it's an audio uh it's a narrative storytelling podcast. It's like a little audio documentary, each one, and it's related to movies about New York and New York history and all that sort of fun stuff, which is also really in good. my book. It's a good podcast. Really it's really it. good. We worked yeah. we worked so hard on it that we decided our next podcast was not going to entail nearly as much work, which is why <laughs> we're now doing a conversational podcast, which is its own thing and fun. And I don't mean to, to we love doing this show for you. But we also at the time, uh, as is required by the bylaws of podcasting, set up a Patreon. Uh, and on that Patreon, we shared bonus episodes once a month. Uh, often, you know, sometimes just a, a two-person conversation between us about some film or other that we wanted to talk about. Um, sometimes full versions of the interviews that we cut up for the show. Um, and then this one time uh, for Christmas of 2020, we had just done a Christmas episode um, about uh, Home Alone 2 Lost in New York, which, again, go download. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It's, it's, it's I have to say, a pr pretty good hour or so of listening. Um, but we needed a bonus episode for that month also. So what we did was we reached out to our friend Alonzo Duralde, who is um, a film critic for The Rap and uh, podcaster extraordinaire. He's got like five shows going. Um, and also is a Christmas movie expert. Um, he, at that time, had published a lovely book called Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas, which is a terrific guide to, uh, to holiday cinema. Uh, since then, last year, he published another book called I'll Be Home for Christmas Movies, the Deck the Hallmarks podcast guide to your holiday TV <laughs> obsession. <laughs> which you should also pick up. Um, so this is a dude who knows his Christmas movies. Well, in addition yes. to his expertise, just a lovely, just lovely a delightful human dude. being, just a just great a dude, a very easy conversation. A good, yeah, great the whole dude. thing. Yeah, yeah, great dude. So, what we decided to do was to have him on and to talk about three more uh, New York Christmas movies that we thought were kind of worth talking about. Um, and so we had him on, and we did that. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And then as I was thinking about what to program for Christmas, I realized, A, based on our Patreon numbers, like maximum 15 of you have heard this episode. Uh, and it's I'd like more to hear it because it's a lot of fun. But also that, it turns out, was kind of the prototype for this show because it was me and my co-host across the country and across the microphone from me. Michael Hall. And a guest who was knowledgeable and movie savvy and interesting. 
Um, and so that I, that's the other reason I wanted to share with you. If you like this show, then maybe you'd like to hear this little, uh, embryonic one-off oddity, um, of us talking about New York Christmas movies with the great Alonzo Duralde. So here that is and enjoy. Alonzo Duralde is someone I've, I, whose work I'm familiar with, who I've followed on Twitter forever, who I read, uh, who I listen to, but who I, it, Alonzo, it speaks, I think, to your, I don't know, everyone who follows me hears all the time about the books I've written. Like, I relentlessly promote them. And I somehow just found out in the past couple of weeks that you had written a book about Christmas movies. That I have failed spectacularly, because I feel like I'm promoting that thing all the time. <laughs> you know, you... It's it's wonderful uh, that that uh, that we that we can still learn things about writers we admire. I'm going to put it in that framing. Um, but as soon as I saw that with this episode in mind, I said, "Well, oh shit, we got to get Alonzo on the show. We got to like have him come on and t- and talk to us about these motion pictures." So uh, Alonzo Duralde is our guest. He's a film critic for the Rap. He's the co-host of many podcasts, many many podcasts. Uh, in, in fact, I'll let you. Uh, plug those first and we'll make sure we get that get that done <laughs> sure i'm co-host of linoleum knife which is uh, a podcast that my husband dave white and i've been doing for 10 years uh and then also uh breakfast all day who shot you and a film and a movie so like this you know this is just a day at the office for you to hop hop on the mic and talk <laughs> to us we really but we appreciate you doing it um and tell thanks for having yeah me. well tell me a little bit about have yourself a movie little christmas well, you know, it was just kind of born out of my twin obsessions. I love movies and I love Christmas. Um, and going as far back as I'd say the late 80s when I was just starting out and working in, in newspapers, um, inevitably the season would roll around and some editor would want some kind of list or other of, you know, un- unusual Christmas movies or movies that people don't think of as Christmas movies or whatever like that. And so um, over the years I had just sort of been accumulating these titles in my head and uh, eventually just kind of like did a did a book of it and uh, you know so I, I try to sort of cast a wide enough net to where like if you want to read about Elf you're gonna read about Elf but if you want to read about you know the Lion in Winter or uh, you know Gremlins or or you know I like to think of myself as an early adopter on the whole Die Hard <laughs> thing you know that's all in there too. Good for you doing God's work. Um so is there anything particular, any sort of, uh, I don't know, aesthetic or thematic through line that sort of comes to your mind when you think of the New York Christmas movie? You know, I, I think it, it, I think the, the New York Christmas movie and the L.A. Christmas movie obviously distinct, d- operate in very distinct planes. For one thing, it's more yes. likely to be snowing in a New York Christmas right. movie. <laughs> so that helps, you know. Um you know, I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, if you, if you if you watch like a lot of Hallmark movies the way I do, you know, they really sort of fetishize the kind of rustic small town Christmas. So there's something about taking the very gritty urban sense of New York City and then suddenly like there's a dusting of snow on it or there's a there's a string of lights in the deli window and suddenly, you know, like that just adds a little something to it. So I think it, it is it is as much an invention of you know, kind of contemporary, you know, 20th century America and the movies, uh, the way that Dickens really put a stamp on people's idea of Christmas with a Christmas carol for a long time. I mean, there's so much imagery that we see even now in the United States 
whether it's on cards or or in different places where it's this idea of like there's top hats and there's women with you know muffs like this notion of the Victorian Christmas that's sort of imprinted on the holiday and I think the New York Christmas as it's been in movies has kind of created its own alternate version of that and it is this very sort of like teeming big city you know it is skyscrapers it is you know shop windows but it's also christmas and and you know a song like say uh, silver bells which was introduced in a new york christmas movie the lemon drop kid is not talking about the beautiful forests or the churches or the town square it's talking about you know the sidewalks and and santa claus's you know ringing their bells and about you know parks and stuff like that so it it is something that we have invented as americans as people are constantly reinventing the idea of what christmas is how we celebrate it and what it even looks like right and i would imagine because you've seen these and and for the most part i haven't there's also the more recently this the, the the degree to which New York plays into those hallmark rustic Christmas movies, whereas in a lot of those like we have the heroine who lives in in the bad city in New York or whatever and has to like <laughs> return to the small town to relearn the meaning of Christmas. Is there a fair amount of that? Yeah, like they'll basically if you you know here's what happens generally speaking for for I'd say a good eighty to ninety okay. percent. Of I didn't want to be too the, stereotypical, oh. but please stereotype <laughs> no, it. Thank you. I, yeah, no. They, the stereotypes come from somewhere. Trust me. <laughs> uh, very often these movies will begin with like five or six shots of very picturesque New York things. And almost always it will include the giant like red Christmas balls that are in that fountain in front of the building where Fox News is. Right. It'll include the ice skating rink at um, uh, Rockefeller of Center. Course. You know, a, a handful of things like that. Then we cut to a sidewalk with the heroine and it's Vancouver. Right. Uh, <laughs> and then and then she goes home and uh, usually almost always the lesson is, oh God, you've got to get out of the city right. and come back to, to, your, to your roots. Uh, but there is at least there is at least that sort of opening acknowledgement of like yeah new york and new york and christmas it's it's pretty there are things to look at it's an effort is being made it's not like it's shown as this like horrible you know den of thieves or something right you know um and every so often you'll find a movie where they go back to new york or they at least visit new york and talk about how cool it is or you know in a lifetime movie they'll just do the whole thing in new york and nobody has to go to the right country. Um, what are, I mean, I mentioned we, you know, it's not a big reveal. We mentioned as sort of homework for the, the, for the bonus episode listeners that we're going to talk about Miracle on 34th street, Scrooged and Eyes Wide Shut today. Before we dig into those, are there any, what, what are some of your, your favorite New York Christmas movies that, that whether they're sort of obvious ones or ones that might not leap to mind? Well, uh, you know, I love Metropolitan. Yes. That, I think, is, is a great one. And, uh, you know, Whit Stillman even talks about how basically the city of New York gave him a billion dollars worth of art direction right. for a low-budget movie, you know. <laughs> uh, so I, I admire the moxie of filmmakers who sort of run out like, okay, this stuff is up anyway. Let's capture it right now while we can. Like, you know, legendarily um, Elf, actually, when they, when they, they weren't really going to start filming until the beginning of the following year, but they ran around and got all this stuff on the sidewalks with Will Ferrell while the city was done up for Christmas so that they wouldn't lose it and have to try and recreate it with their own art department. And of course, Elf ties in in an interesting way to Miracle on 34th Street, as we'll discuss uh, in a lot of different ways. In fact, on, if I may plug, a film and a movie, we just talked, we just did a whole episode where we sort of connected the DNA between those two films. So those those two definitely leap to mind as like, it's here anyway, let's shoot right. it, you know. <laughs> I think the you know we had we had selected these and then um and 
someone bugged me on Twitter and I was like, oh, because it was too late to sort of add it on. I think one that I wanted to, to make sure I at least made mention of before before we dig in. Uh, it, there's a terrific uh, sort of no budget early 60s late noir movie called Blast of Silence, which does a lot of what you're talking about as well. It was, you know, it was in the period when really only small independent films that were shooting non-union were shooting in their entirety in New York City before sort of, you know, the executive order from Mayor Lindsay that made New York shooting possible. Uh, but it's this terrific little like 77 minute uh, hitman movie that, you know, you feel like maybe was just sort of accidentally being shot during the Christmas season, but takes advantage of, you know, there are whole sequences of this guy while he's just sort of waiting for his assignment, just wandering around uh, New York while, you know, this uh, sort of existential voiceover is happening in his head. But you end up with these these really beautiful images of like midtown Manhattan in Christmas season in the early 1960s. Same kind of thing, like the, sort of uh, taking advantage of what's there on a low budget, which right. I think is very cool. I I, I need to see that one. There's actually a bunch of noir films coming up on TCM this year that are all set around Christmas. I'm like, Beautiful, oh wow! Yeah. I mean, like I knew I know about like Lady in the Lake and you know Christmas Holiday, but there were a bunch that I right. had missed. Kiss of, so I, Kiss I have of Death starts. There. Yeah, Kiss of Death starts Kiss during of Death, Christmas. Yeah, uh, Lady on the Train. Yeah, there's there's Beautiful. a bunch of doing. Oh, speaking of low budget movies in New York, um, uh, 2014's Christmas Again. I'm a big fan of. Okay. Uh, Charles Pokel's debut feature. It stars Kentucker Audley, who you've seen oh, in yeah, She yeah, Dies yeah. Tomorrow and some other stuff. And uh, it's about a guy, uh, a, a, a depressed individual who is working at a one of those Christmas tree lots that's set up in like an alleyway between a couple of buildings. And it's a really wonderfully kind of, uh, I, I love a, a Christmas movie that's not afraid to lean into the melancholy. Um, but it's but it's also, you know, I think eventually it does have a redemptive arc. It's not just a solid bummer. But yeah, it's a film I like a lot. And I've really been pushing on folks because I think it kind of has traveled uh, beneath the radar, but it's a really great American indie and very much a New York story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love there. There was uh, there's another one that's not as good uh, and they changed the title like three times. So I don't know what they landed on with uh, Paul Rudd and Paul Giamatti, but that's same with the, the setup. Just, I, I am fascinated by the, I, the setup of the, the Christmas tree worker in new york in the holiday season like and it deals in that as well like i've always been fascinated by these people who just you know come in around thanksgiving and like park a truck you know park an rv a tra you know a little trailer like on a corner and sell christmas trees for a month and then disappear it's a really interesting sort of new york existence and a thing that i don't think happens in a lot of other cities uh, there's actually an older hallmark movie sort of before they really got as codified as they are now with um uh, Anne Heche and uh, oh Tay Donovan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's called Silver Bells. That is about it's that very thing. Like she's a you know high powered city lady, and he's a dude from a tree farm in Vermont or something. And he and his kids come into the city once a year, and you know have their RV and and sell their trees and stuff. And that one, if they didn't shoot it in New York, they do a more convincing job than these movies often do. <laughs> gotcha, Mike. You watched a few others uh, in the run up as well. Did you have any uh, any side uh, side recommendations you wanted to make before we get? to the to the meat and potatoes here 
No, I was just going to recommend against trying to make a, a lovely short holiday documentary about those people that sell trees because none of them are, are American and none of them will talk to you. <laughs> I tried once to make a very nice short holiday movie because I live at 15th and 6th, right, at that time. And it's like it's heavy snow and the trees are so beautiful. And every two blocks, there's another lineup of trees. And I was like, I'm going to make a nice movie for my mother. And none of them will talk to you because of none of them are actually from <laughs> Vermont. That's a lie. They all come from Canada and just like <laughs> keep to themselves. <laughs> I think that was their first shot and then they didn't that, that didn't work out so they had to go the Tate Donovan route. So you have to make a movie with Tate Donovan and write the lines because you can't make a documentary. That's really all I have to add on the subject. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start with uh let's start then with Miracle on 34th Street with the original. I feel like I have to make sure it's clear the original Miracle on 34th Street 1947 uh screenplay and direction by George Seaton. Um, I, I don't know, Alonzo, when did you first see this one? Cause I have such clear memories of seeing this as a kid. Uh, weirdly enough, not until I was an adult. Like one of the things that I've, I've, one of the things I've noticed about, at least about my era, cause I was, I didn't, I didn't own a computer until I was 30. So like the internet came late in my life. Um, I, you know, I think that for a lot of people of my generation, you sort of grew up with what your parents were into. You know, you had you had their Christmas records and, you know, they would generally sort of dictate like, oh, let's all gather and watch this movie and not necessarily that movie. So there are a lot of classics that I didn't really come to until later on. Like, um, I think even White Christmas, I, I sort of stumbled upon when I was in my teens or something, but it wasn't one of our, our go-tos. And neither was Miracle on 34th Street for some reason. So, uh, yeah, it was later in life. But, you know, I, I knew about it, obviously. I knew about, you know, Edmund Gwen winning an Oscar and, you know, that it being an early Natalie Wood appearance and all that stuff. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a, it's a you know, it, thoroughly charming and, and I think one that I, I now try and get to every couple of years, if not annually. Um and it has that whole great sort of documentary aspect and that you're seeing the actual 1946, you know, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade at the beginning of the film. Right. I know. I love all that stuff. The, I'll, and I'll get back to that. That's I've never thought of the personal Christmas canon in that way. But you're absolutely right. Like that's that's the my first Christmas albums were the things that my dad loved. Like he he loved the uh, the John Denver and Muppets Christmas album. Like we played mm. that <laughs> every year. And his favorite Christmas movies were uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Miracle on 34th right. Street and An American Christmas Carol, the oh, late <laughs> 70s TV movie where Henry Winkler plays Scrooge. Uh, yes. He adored An American Christmas Carol, had it on VHS, like store-bought VHS uh, all for, through his, for, throughout his life. He watched it every Christmas. That's, but that's a really good point. Yeah, we, I remember seeing this one as a very little kid before I really understood what New York or Macy's or any of that stuff was. And also somehow at the time that I saw it, the 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 TV movie, the seventies TV movie version, that one I had was seen. still in pretty heavy <laughs> rotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I, Mike, you watched the did you watched them both right when we were doing the the research for this one. I watched every remake in English I could find. <laughs> I didn't watch like Miracle on Jaipur Street, you know, because the, there's a lot of like foreign kind of re retake you know just kind of takeoffs that are localized which mm -hmm. is its own fascinating thing maybe that'll be next Definitely. year's christmas edition <laughs> but you know this movie is like I, I my early memories i can't remember i mix up it's a wonderful life and miracle on 34th street so obviously i saw them early enough that i can't clearly remember when i think about 
those memories of them, uh, which is which, you know. So then I didn't really see Miracle on 34th Street until I lived in New York, uh, like really watch it, you know, as a grown conscious person. Right. Right. And by then, you know, I had spent a couple of holidays, a couple of Christmas seasons in New York, and it really I didn't really uh, care that much about Christmas. I don't I mean, it was fine, but it wasn't the, like it seemed to me like it was a nice day or a couple of days. But the season, you know, the event to me just seemed really <laughs> absurd and I didn't understand it. And then you live in New York and it <laughs> and it just like it's, you know, Christmas Day in New York is Miracle on 34th Street gets it right. Like in a way mm. that I just can't the the feel of. You know, everybody's gotten, you know, everybody's been tipped out this week. Uh, people are just walking around in the middle of the street with, you know, plastic shot cups and, and you know, some crazy liquor they buried in a beach six months ago. It's just like everybody's got their own kind of traditions. Everybody's happy. Everybody's sharing. Uh, it's just a beautiful place on Christmas. And and I and you, you well, you one thing that you mentioned to me when we were talking about this that I hadn't occurred to me before too is the 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 feeling like that when you're in New York on Christmas for the most part, like it's sort of deserted because so many people have gone quote unquote home for the holidays, and so you really feel like it's one of those one of the few days of the year where the city's sort of been taken back by people who were actually born and raised in New York. Which is an interesting uh, phenomenon. Lo Los Angeles has a similar thing yeah. about the uh, few days before and a few days after Christmas. Suddenly, like traffic is much much lighter. Right. There's parking everywhere, right. and and it's like, oh, this is it, I like this version. Right. I want to live in this and manageable in L.A. And then everybody comes back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think there's a little bit too of that in the in the opening of Miracle on 34th in that that Thanksgiving Day, not even before we get to the the parade, but just that wonderful opening credit sequence. Which this is one I feel like I should mention, you know, that I, that I talk about in the book as being an example of the the sort of predominant way of of doing things for New York stories in this pre New York location photography era was you know you just shoot it on the New York backlot and every studio had a New York block on their backlot etc or had those sort of generic streets and would shoot it there but occasionally if the film you know had enough prestige or was important enough to a studio they would at least send a, you know a second unit out and get some exteriors sometimes even with the actors and that's like that opening credit sequence, like you, the, you're, that's clearly him walking through New York, like in a way that you can't fake on the back lot. So I always love those little flashes in those early movies when you couldn't see it as 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 easily. And then, yeah, like you said, that like sort of that almost documentary quality of like, oh, this was the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Like, this is the real thing. Like, they didn't stage this in Hollywood. They just <laughs> took some cameras there. And it's beautiful. It's a wonderful sequence. I, I, just a little anecdote I think you guys might find interesting given the topic of the show. Um, uh, the, uh, the, my first moved to Los Angeles in the early 90s and uh, I was a temp, you know, the, when I was sort of trying to get work. And I worked for an agency that only had um, like show business clients. So I would get sent to a lot of studio lots for a day or two to like answer phones mm -hmm. or do whatever, you know, the, the thing. And so it became this thing where I managed to eat a sand my lunch on every New York backlot in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> the Fox one, the Paramount one, the Disney one, the Warner one. Because like, yeah, they all still have yeah. one to this day. No, I would I mean I would imagine around that time the Warner's one was what they were shooting friends on. Uh, if I 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I sat on a lot of stoops. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. I did watch uh, both the original. I rewatched the original for this one because m- my family Christmas movies are uh, A Christmas Story and Emmett Otter's Jug Band. And uh, both great Solid. movies. Solid. And if you didn't leave my house, you would not know there has ever been another Christmas movie made. So uh, I had to go back and re- that my family is who they do that 24 hours all day long Christmas. We are the right. people that actually just let that run for the whole time. Uh, so right. so I went back and rewatched the original uh, to really kind of get refreshed on it. Uh, it's always every time I watch it, it's better than I remember it being. But then I went ahead and jumped in and I and I watched the 50 the 1955 TV version, uh, the 1973 TV version and then the 1994. I had to, of course, watch the Hughes 1994 right after mm. Home Alone 2 version. Right. Right. Uh, it, right. It really <laughs> felt like they just scored that whole thing with B-sides from Home Alone 2. I mean, it's good, <laughs> but it feels so much like a knockoff right. of 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 the you know the music from Home Alone too. It was really hard not to notice. But the nineteen fifty five version, you know, the forty seven version is what everybody remembers. It's great. Uh, the nineteen fifty five version is a TV version, and it's forty five minutes long. It's available on YouTube, uh, and it really feels like they kind of expected everyone to have seen the other one. <laughs> because like they they skip a lot we'll just say it's that you know notes. yeah it really is a cliff yeah. notes version you know they skip the whole drunk santa thing he's already being like uh interviewed by the psychiatrist 15 minutes into the movie and and there's these right. weird yeah. like you know the nursing home guy is like pretty fucking hot and definitely hitting on mrs walker like that's You know, so there's it's interesting to watch these movies to see the things that are just original to that version of it. You know, like that that psychiatrist guy, like he didn't or the nursing home guy, he didn't watch any of the other versions and nobody watched his take. That was just his own version of that thing, you know, (laughs) Um, and it it's it's. you know, I don't know. I mean, it moves it moves well, but it, I didn't really think like the whole courtroom to like the whole courtroom to the house at the end. Five minutes, maybe the entire thing. Right. So, you know, it, it's uh, it, it feels like a thing that was made to sell cigarettes and more more than anything else. The 1973 <laughs> version, however, which is also on YouTube, is pretty fucking great. When is the last yeah. time you saw it? Really? I mean, I was I was I, a kid, you know. I, I grew up with that version, and I went back and watched it 10 years ago when I was researching the book, and I just thought it was really painful, wow. and I, I don't really think I finished it. I just I found it really just kind of cringeworthy. Maybe it's my David Hartman issue. I don't know. <laughs> it's weird but, to uh, watch David Hartman in that if you grew up watching Good Morning America. It is weird to see him well, I, I, playing I, a role. I remember his pre Good Morning America acting career because, like, he did a lot of those sort of Disney live action movies. Right. Like, I think he was in Island at the Top of the World right. or one of those, you know. Uh, and he would pop up in in like he's not, there's a Mystery Science Theater or I think like San Francisco International. Right. I think he's he's the hijacker in that one. Uh, but yeah, I I don't know. I mean, you've seen it more recently, so you tell me. But my my thoughts of the the '70s version is that it's kind of misbegotten. Although Sebastian Cabot was a decent yeah. Santa Claus, as I recall. Yeah. Well. 
okay, it, it it opens at the parade route, like you know, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street should. But there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of green leaves on the trees in the background, so <laughs> don't let that throw you <laughs> off. Because that <laughs> I almost I almost just hit the fast forward, you know, the two times button on that one, right? But I, I stuck with it. Uh, Mr. Macy is really terrible. Um, the janitor kid is like really fucking creepy, like Leatherface at fourteen. <laughs> like incel as fuck you know so like there's a handful of things that that really you know kind of um don't work uh that are very much kind of markers of the time right the um the budding romance is like way sexier like definitely like post playboy you know kind of uh post like hugh hefner you know kind of after dark right. world right um <laughs> they definitely like drink wine by a fire, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but it like, but really it's, it's pretty faithful. And I think the thing I like the best about it is the, the Dr. Sawyer character, the psychiatrist is it, think about the difference between the portrayal of psychiatry in movies in 1947 and in the seventies. He's way sure. creepier. He's way more fetishy uh, to be honest, but he's also like much more believable. <laughs> You know, he seems mm. like one of these people who like ma who 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 uh, <clears throat> majored in psychology uh, to distract themselves from becoming serial killers. And it just right. like to me, like <laughs> it's it worked way better. It was much more interesting. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know. I liked it. I thought it was I thought it was faithful, but but different in its own way. Another thing I noticed for the first time in this one is because they skip the whole Santa speaking what is he speaking Swedish in the first one or right? Dutch. Dutch. Okay. <clears throat> they skip that scene altogether in the 1955 version because obviously they're out of time and they're selling cigarettes. He speaks Spanish <laughs> in the, the 1973 mm. version. And that definitely felt of a time. You know what I mean? Like that yeah. felt like it was part of the kind of conversation with Cesar Chavez and you're coming out of all of the, um, the civil rights stuff before like it, it, it made sense in a way that that was Spanish and not Dutch. And that's actually a way to kind of uh, 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 something that I was looking for in the 1994 version then. Uh, and Santa speaks sign language in the 1994 version, mm. which fits that kind yeah, of. ASL. Yeah, which, you know, which, again, feels very much of the conversation of that time. Um, right, and I it's think it's like a progression. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I think that's like it's it. that is, I think. What I enjoyed uh, most about watching these movies, we've talked about kind of how the different ways that New York gets portrayed. Um, with these movies, it wasn't necessarily the way New York gets portrayed because they're not really that much about New York. You know, they right. they are, you know, a little bit, but but they happen in New York, but they're really kind of about making this girl believe. And, you know, uh, they spend a little bit too much time trying to explain shit in the 1994 version, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, they, you know, they spend, which isn't very much time, but they do spend a little bit of time trying to talk about, like, Santa, like, stopping time so he can deliver all the presents and all that kind of stuff. It, they didn't need to do that, uh, I didn't think. But just in terms of how we talk about ourselves, and how we talk about Christmas and the things that are important to us um, kind of mm -hmm. as a society more than than reflecting New York is really reflected in right. these movies in the way that that, you know, we're going to mention Scrooge. And I use a little bit of that in the 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 opener, the chalkboard for last episode. You know, this is when when we have a, a couple of days to be the people that we 
think of ourselves as, right? That we want to be, that kind of best case scenario. Uh, and these movies are good examples of that, of kind of how we think about how wh who we want to be at Christmas and how we want to be at Christmas. And what we decided kind of early on in this episode, which is that, you know, it's okay for a few hours every year to just let some shit go, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and i mean and the other thing that that was really striking to me about about this one and then we'll we'll move on to scrooge is um and i wrote about this actually i had a piece went up on crooked marquee yesterday the idea that like it's it it is reckoning with the sort of the idea of christmas and consumerism and capitalism in a very direct right. way that <clears throat> not all movies really know how to deal with like this idea that part of you know, having the spirit of Christmas is to better guide consumers, which I think is is a very sort of capitalist, but sensical, but, you know, and and truthful approach to um, to how we approach the holiday, like that the big deal is not that that Santa Claus is working in this department store and saying it's the thought that counts, not the gift or anything like that. It's that he's working in the department store saying, well, if they don't have it here, you go to Gimbel's. Um, and that <laughs> that's sort of how, how his, his humanity and his, his love of the holiday is portrayed. Um, Alonzo, what are your thoughts on the, on the, the, the consumerism of Miracle on 34th street? Yeah, you're right. It does sort of exist in this thing of, you know, and, and also frankly, if Santa is, Santa and is going to deliver gifts why right. buy them at all right. right I mean that's you know that would that would be sort of the underlying thing but yeah the the notion that that he's not bound to his employer in terms of you know how to sell stuff you're right that's that's as close as we're going to get in this capitalist structure to the notion of you know like uh, love and and acceptance like yeah sending them to the sending them to the rival you know purveyor of goods that that counts as a christmas <laughs> miracle you know exactly all right. Anybody else? I just want to say anything else. Anyone? Uh, yeah. Just one more point on this. The actress who did uh, the the Macy's is sending people to other stores. That lady in the first movie, right? You know, who's like, I Thel can't. Thelma Ritter. Okay. Thelma Ritter of Rear Window. Yeah. She set the mold. Her, one of her first films. She set the mold mm. on that part, man, because the accents that these women use could sink a body to the bottom of the East River in less than a minute. <laughs> I mean, they are just heavy. Oh, oh and I, I, I was foist in line. Like they just get deeper and deeper as the movies go. So good for her for setting the mold on that one. Yeah, did that, did that. I have, I have one quick fun fact. The guy who plays Doctor Sawyer in the original movie is a character actor named Porter Hall. Oh yeah, and there, there is a character named Porter Hall in BVD. In the yes, Dolls. <laughs> the the Squaresville uh, lawyer dude that, yes, that she yes, tries yes. and fails to seduce. Oh, I love that. I Him. love that Porter Hall. Um, all right, so so uh, so if Miracle on Thirty Fourth is in the you know the the mold of its era of the New York movie that's mostly shot elsewhere with a few inserts and things here and there. Um, then what we have in Scrooge is the 19, you know, which came out in 1988, much more of that era where most of the, at least New York street photography is done in New York. And we see some real actual New York locations and New York, uh, settings. And it has a very 1980s New York feel like that was really the thing that jumped out to me watching it this time in the context of all of this, as opposed to just watching it, you know, every year or two as a Christmas movie, which to be clear, I usually do. Um, 
was sort of like that it came out in 88 and it really is kind of like like Wall Street came out a year before and it feels like a double feature of that like he you know <laughs> or or working girl or secret of my or success presaging american Psycho. yes like all of these sort of late 80s like asshole business wall street new york movies which really was like you know a trend there uh baby boom i think oh, yeah. would be another one uh all <laughs> anybody where they have the brick phone yes. you know <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly and while he's not while he's working in media and not working in finance the way the characters in all those films are it very much feels cut from that same cloth and the idea that you know of re of, of thinking about uh ebenezer scrooge through a gordon gecko lens is I think a really interesting one. I have very clear memories of seeing this one when it came out uh, as well. I think actually at the drive-in the following spring as like the second or third feature. I didn't <laughs> I didn't see it at Christmas when it came out. Um, but it's such a I think fascinating sort of like '80s studio product artifact. And again, I love the movie a lot. But it is strange that this is like you know uh, a Bill Murray vehicle co-written by Michael O'Donohue and, and Mitch Glazer, who were SNL guys, like guys that he worked with in that early era of Saturday Night Live, but directed by Richard Donner, like as as his follow-up <laughs> to Lethal Weapon, which is also, as you'll... A, a, a Christmas, Christmas movie, movie. yes. Um, but it's just such a strange sort of merging of sensibilities um, and, and of... Uh, ideas about what makes a comedy to sort of get a not really comedy director in in on this one. So, but you know, it, it creates I think some some interesting tension that that often works, occasionally does. I don't know, Alonzo, where do you land on Scrooge? I'm kind of mezzo mezzo on it. I I reviewed it, I reviewed it when it came out. I was I was working at the Nashville Banner. Oh I just graduated from college. Um, yeah, I'm. I had no idea. Um, to, to be fair, <laughs> and. Uh, so yeah, you know, I I think there's I think you're right. There is that tension between sort of different kind of co comedic perspectives in the film that that sometimes you know creates something special, and other times just sort of feels kind of awkwardly put together. Mm -hmm. I I admire Murray's commitment to the performance. Certainly, he's like not afraid to go big, um, even if maybe sometimes. He might have benefited from a, a sure directorial hand to be like bigger here, smaller there. Like I would love 1988 Robert Zemeckis to have directed this movie. Right. You know, when he was still doing stuff like, you know, Remains in the Stone and Used Cars and hadn't gone around the bend right. yet. Um, <laughs> you know, no, I, to I, that, I, I think to that, that end, <laughs> I remember him, uh, a Roger Ebert interview he did a couple years later where they were talking about Scrooge, which Ebert, I think rather famously, quite disliked. And where Bill Murray was saying that that all the direction he was getting from Richard Donner was just like louder, faster. Like he said, it was almost uh, like we were shooting a movie live. Like everything was just fast and loud and go. Um, and I, so I true. think that that sensibility really is reflected in the performance. And to be clear, like there was going to be tension, no matter who was directing it, just because like it was a holiday Christmas. Christmas Carol adaptation penned by these, particularly Michael O'Donoghue, <laughs> a very dark sensibility right. to begin with. And so yeah. there, there really is a, a kind of alchemy you have to get to get that all to work. 
Well, and, and the thing about a Christmas Carol is like you know, yes, it's sentimental and uplifting, but it is also a freaking ghost. Oh, story, it's bleak. you know, and yeah. so yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, you know, I, I saw a lot of Christmas Carols when I was doing the mm-hmm. book, and it just became this sort of checklist of like you know, do they include ignorance and want? Do they include the people in the lighthouse? Mm. Like you know, these all these little moments that pop up in the Dickens that sometimes do or don't show up in the adaptation. So you could certainly go dark with the material and and still be in the spirit of it and i think one of the things this does right in in the way that the original dickens does is that you get a sense of different sort of economic strata Mm. not just in 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 the lead character's own life but like you know you have you have alfrey woodard as the bob cratchit you know but then you also have like the 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 you know and you have the homeless people but then you also have sort of the fancy network execs and stuff so it's you know it is a thing where you see how Christmas touches everybody and how, you know, also Christmas maybe for some people accentuates their, the, the lack in their lives or, you know, their, their, their needs and their, you know, their, their poverty. Um, so it does get that part right. Um, and then beyond that, it just becomes a thing of comedy where it's like, it's super subjective and it either works for you or it doesn't. I adore Carol Kane. Mm-hmm. I cannot stand <sighs> Carol Kane in this movie. Gasp. And I know I that's blasphemy. Gasped. I know people I know people love that sequence and I do not begrudge it them, but I just find it so overplayed <laughs> and so broad and it, and it, I just I cringe at the thought of it, but I know that people adore it and so I'm not out to yuck anybody's yum, <laughs> uh, but I just it's just not my thing, you know. Uh, I much prefer um, this is actually my favorite, one of my favorite Tiny Tims, mm. because that character is such a Victorian tear-jerking device. And so the fact that he is this mute child, and when he says, God bless us, everyone, it's not that he says that, it's that he says anything yeah. that causes that moment. And then, again, it's that thing about how acting is listening. The way Alfre Woodard reacts when he says that thing is the thing that makes me cry more than the kid doing right. you know, what he's doing. So there are there are little grace notes along the way. I like the TV parody stuff. You know, we always I always quote like you know the night the reindeer died and you know the, 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 that sort of nonsense from the the beginning of the movie yeah. and stapling the antlers and Mary Lou Retton and all that stuff. But there are also parts that I just think oh, too much. Right, right. Mike, uh, thoughts on Scrooged? I saw the movie. You know, I I guess around when it came out. I didn't see it in a theater. It must have been so it must have been on television, so it would have been a little bit later. But it was early enough that that uh, I didn't really have critical thoughts yet on people's acting and stuff. I was just kind of right. I just enjoyed it. I thought it was a funny movie. I didn't realize, you know, um so then I didn't really I didn't know until much, much later that other people liked it. It was just one of those things that I found out later that I was like, oh, no, lots of people my age like that movie. So that was that's been it's been nice to find out that other people like it, because like when I watch it now that I know people think that she's that Carol Kane is ridiculous in the film, I can be like, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. OK, but I have to be I have to come into it trying to come to that place with it. Because to me, it's just like I the first time I saw it, I think I was probably 14 or 15 or something. And it was just great. It was just funny. She's beating the shit out of this guy. And then you find out later, like, oh, he was miserable the whole entire time. And and didn't you know, it, it when I think about it now, it's interesting to me to think about the nuts and bolts of all of it. But it's one of the few movies that I can watch without thinking about the lights. Or, you know, the logistics Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, because at this point, like, it's hard not to kind of get caught in 
oh, I wonder what kind of, you know, how they did that. Where the hell they put the dolly track? It, I don't know. Like, it's just one of those things that, <laughs> that I wish I could not think about when I'm watching the vast majority right. of movies. Scrooge just happens to be a movie I can do that with. Um, and, you know, yeah. mentioning Alfre Woodard uh, as the Cratchit character, you know, that character is, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong, but I, that character is kind of the uh, the perspective of the audience, right? Like, right. that's the kind of middle of the road kind of person that we can all relate to. And I mean, in the Dickens version, in every version, that's kind of the intention sure. of that character, you know? Sure. <clears throat> and I just very rarely relate to that character in any story. <laughs> and... For some reason, Alfre Woodard in this movie, I just immediately click right into her perspective and right into her. And for some reason, she really she really works for me in that movie. And I have the moments of, oh, I don't want that to happen for her or, oh, I do want that to happen for her. I actually have those moments first before <laughs> I realize I've had them, uh, which is just so nice. You know, that's yeah. and I feel like that has a lot to do with her. Um, and her kind of performance in the movie, but also just the entire time she's looking at the Murray character like you're not a real human being. You know what I mean? Like that's not how <laughs> <Right>. human beings <laughs> act. And yeah. I think this is one thing when we look at, at you know, uh, the Bezos of the worlds or the, you know, the, the royalties or whatever <laughs> like that, like those people don't live Elon Musk, Elon Musk like <laughs> they don't live a human existence because a human right. existence <laughs> includes a pushback and includes you know like people in your kind of immediate life that you have responsibilities to that that if you fail them they act a way that you have feelings about you know what i mean like it seems to me like empathy yeah man yes. like they don't have to engage <laughs> in that in any way and i think for the vast majority of human beings if you don't engage in any sort of empathy in any way you have an absolutely untenable fucking existence right and i'm <clears throat> i'm and, so and, sorry to bring to bring him up because we we, we don't even have to anymore but you got to think <laughs> about in 1988 in 1988 in New York, like who had this kind of power, who was running in these kind of circles, <laughs> who we also have learned has no empathy for other human beings. Like I'm not, I, I'm not even going to say the name cause I, we don't have to anymore. And I like side note, the most pleasurable moment of recording the last episode was the part when I say at the end at now at the end of the Trump administration. And like, that was the first time I'd said that shit out loud. Cause I don't talk to a lot of people anymore. Um, but that's like, that's, he's cut from that same cloth of like this 80s like like Alonzo I hadn't really even thought about it in the terms you're talking about but that you're right that it really nails that socioeconomic dynamic um that was not only you know but that was also very specific to late 80s New York like the degree to which that was a city that was very pleasurable right then for rich people yeah and but yet like was plagued by houselessness and that you know was plagued by by people living like right around the poverty line and the degree to which that is dramatized in the scenes where we see her at home and the kind of place that she's living at without seeming like you know like misery porn or whatever but just like a very yeah. matter of fact duplication of like the kind of apartment she would live in is like a, a few a few blocks away, Willie Ninja was walking in a ball, and they were, you know, dressing right. as stockbrokers and right. you know fashion models, and and yeah, the, the, that's the 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 wealth disparity of late eighties New York is is a an entire subject of itself, and and Scrooge isn't like a deep exploration of it, but it's, it's there, there. It's, it's certainly it's, part of the part of the and it's there in it's a also credible there. way. 
Like, I think that's yeah. what stands out so much to me is like in the middle of this otherwise absurd movie with Carol Kane being uh, uh, so ridiculous that it, some people can't watch the whole movie. I, I realize that's not what you were saying, Alonzo, but some people get really fucking upset about that performance. <laughs> that element of it, even though it's not overwhelming, is very credible, just as I think it is in the original novel. Yeah. And I th- yeah, and and you're right. The, uh, sorry, just but but, but they, they don't indulge in poverty porn with with Alfred Woodard's character. Like the Cratchits, that is a warm home. Yes. It is a loving home, and you know, like they, she is, she's making the best of it uh, of of her circumstances and raising a family. And it's you know that's really beautifully portrayed. Yeah. The one last thing I wanted to say, and then we sh- we should move on to our last film, was that one thing that did jump out at me again, again watching it this time for the first time, really from a New York perspective, is the great scene where he's walking and complaining about the street musician bilking the tourists um and miles davis is one of the street musicians like it's miles davis and like <laughs> paul schaefer and like a bunch you know like people of that ilk um and he's complaining I... about them bilking the tourists <laughs> why don't the cops do something about this jesus christ like fucking miles davis i love that i love that I, and I do hope that, like, you know, the the uh, Al Green, Annie Lennox version of Put a Little Love in Your Heart for this movie becomes, like, more canonically a Christmas song because it's really It's great. lovely, and it's a wonderful note to end the movie on after that sort of vulnerable and and, and open-hearted... Yeah. Uh, the, the, the... I do love his crazy final yeah. speech. Like, I know that's Dude. also divisive, but that part works. I love yes. that. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's really vulnerable and open in a way that it's also important, I think, to put into the context of Bill Murray's career. That like really mm. up until that moment, and this was the first starring role he had done in like four years. He did Ghostbusters in 84, followed immediately by The Razor's Edge, which was like the financing right. of The Razor's Edge was his condition for doing Ghostbusters. And then he right, made an absurd right. amount of money on Ghostbusters and basically disappeared for four years. Yeah, except for Little Shop of Horrors. Except for the cameo in Little Shop of Horrors, right. This, But this was his first like full-on Bill Murray movie back. And the fact that after that break... After having sort of perfected this persona of detached cynicism, cynicism. <laughs> I, and 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 um, irony, irony, yes, that like that suddenly the first film back culminates in this like really sincerity. open embrace of sincerity that mm. really points the way to where he was going to eventually go in his career in a way that I don't think any of us could have predicted when the picture came out. That final speech always felt improvised to me. Is that actually the case? It, it, it is. It was partially improvised. Yes, I have heard that. Yeah. That that he that he just kind of that that Donner just kind of let him go, and a lot of that is what made it into the movie. Yeah. yeah. I I would love to see the the um, uh, O'Donohue you know Glazer version of the script like what mm-hmm. they had in mind and, and and maybe it's all there and it's just a matter of how it's directed but i you know because i've heard over the years o'donohue loves to complain about how this would have been it's a wonderful life if they'd had a better director and like <laughs> well that's easy for you to say let's <laughs> let's just, right. some receipts please you know right that's great all right well we want to uh wrap up then with uh with a movie that that is the most recent but uh in a weird way most closely mirrors the new york shooting sensibility of uh the pre-1965 era which is uh the horniest possible christmas movie eyes wide shut um which was famously uh you know you you see them then they jump out at you you know some some second unit uh, establishing shots that were clearly shot in New York, but this was, you know, uh, late in Stanley Kubrick's life and well past the period where he wasn't leaving England again. And so uh, at, uh, I'm sure, great expense, they constructed New York streets on the Pinewood Studios uh, 
sound stages for him so that he could shoot his New York movie in England. Um, and I don't know, you know, at the time that I saw it, not really thinking about this New York stuff, like that stuff feels fake. Like it feels like it's shot on, on, on sets to me, but I also like, I appreciate in a strange way after watching so many other movies that did the same thing, the way that the sort of like, you know, there are real cars there and there are like, you know, there are real like, you know what I mean? Like, like parking meters. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it, it's, it, it, it lives in this weird zone where it's neither as convincing as real photography or as unconvincing as backlot photography that I almost feel like gives, gives it all that sort of like dream quality that is, that sort of permeates the entire movie. I'm, I've, I've come around on how well that stuff works having thought a lot about how New York is recreated in movies. Um, I don't know. I, 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 where, where do you land on this one, Alonso? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I've always defended this as a Christmas movie, and I think it's a movie that gets better with age. I remember yes. lining up to see it on opening day in 1999. Um, there was so much excitement about it. And afterwards thinking, hmm, mm -hmm. Check back with me in 10 or 20 years. And <laughs> indeed, I think after that time had elapsed, I was more able to sort of fully appreciate what he was doing and what it, where, where it was going. Um, you know, I think the interiors are great. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's, it's funny watching it again. Like, uh, you know, if you, again, to, to bring it back to Hallmark movies, they will decorate a hospital bay. Like they will decorate a, a university administrator's office. Like every, there cannot be a corner of a room that doesn't have like a tree and, and, you know, garland and, and all this stuff. And then, and Kubrick's doing the same thing. Every time they walk into a cafe or in a hotel right. lobby or whatever, you know, that party at, at, it's just a wall like, just of like lights, of like the hanging string lights, lights over wall. and over and over. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's my dream house. I get to have the wall of lights from Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, except the orgy, I guess, granted, does not have, you know, because uh, you don't want people tripping over that. They got the masks on. They can sure. barely see anyway. Uh, but, you know, but so he's doing that thing. Like, so when, whenever anybody raises an eyebrow, the thought of Eyes Wide Shut being Christmas, he's like, have you seen it lately? Yeah. Like every second of it has something in it. And he does nothing by accident, you know. Um, the, the exteriors do clang a little bit for me but then i've never spent an actual christmas in new york i i, I was right. there for a couple of days on my book tour about 10 years ago and it was like you know i got to see you know oh the rockefeller ice rink looks smaller <laughs> but the tree looks bigger you know that, that, right. that crazy thing and a few other sort of highlights but um but yeah i, I think that's an interesting interpretation because yeah there is a, a weird sort of dreamlike thing to it and in dreams things are a little askew and not quite what they should be so if it's if it's Cruz's character's POV of what those streets would be looking like and how they would be lit if we look at it that way then that makes more sense because the, the clearly lucid moments again those interiors like you know Pollock's apartment the toy store at the end do feel legitimately right. you know New York-y and Christmassy at the same time and so you know I'm sure Kubrick's team was like eh we did Southeast Asia in the last one we got New York at Christmas no problem <laughs> easy breezy well and yeah. 
that that's wild to me that anybody would say that it's that it's not a Christmas movie because I mean beyond all of the 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 decorative stuff you're talking about, it's also like so beautifully grounded in like the domestic rituals of the season. Like there's Absolutely. there's those conversations about like wrapping presents and uh, I don't care do it tomorrow, you know, and all the Christmas <laughs> parties they're expected to go to and sort of what and you know oh we have to go Christmas shopping which gives us that great last scene and that perfect last line. <laughs> it's just it's it's very much I. I do enjoy the the tension of a horny Christmas movie. Like I love, <laughs> you know, there's room in the canon for dirty, full frontal nudity Christmas movies. Wait. There just is. If, we, if we're gonna have Christmas slasher movies, then all yes! bets are off. Absolutely. Um, Mike, your thoughts on Eyes Wide Shut? You know, I think what works for his movies a lot of times is whether we're like, you know going to wherever the hell the monolith was or whether we are, you know, clockwork orange, even like it, they feel real, they feel lived in, they feel experienced mm -hmm. some way, um, no matter how fucking weird they are, you know? And when I saw this movie, I remember thinking like, this feels like a movie by a person who's never met any rich people or been to an orgy writing what they think it's like <laughs> to meet rich people and go to orgies. Uh, and, and I, it, now I'm have since then have moved to New York, met some shitty rich people. Um, I don't know that Gone this is to a, some orgies. The podcast <laughs> to talk about our orgy experiences, but like it's still, it felt again to me very much like a movie written by a person who was imagining these things and had never mm -hmm. actually experienced them. One of the things that I did like about it is, you know, in the end when Pollock is like, but nothing really happens, you know, like we're all just, we put on these outfits and then we fuck and that's really just it, you know? And I like that kind of, of <clears throat> balloon popping at the end, mm -hmm. you know, because it very much could have gone into like, no, the occult is real. And, you know, we now have her soul <laughs> in a box in the basement of this massive right. house in Long Island, I guess, that is obviously in the yeah. English countryside. Just look at it. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's things about it that I really appreciate because it feels real. But overall, it just anyway, I don't know. It's a very confusing and odd kind of film <laughs> killer finish final sentence though i forgot all about the last line killer last yeah. line uh, you know perfect performed well but it's also uh it, it's earned the fine i feel like the last <laughs> line in that is earned in a way it's not in most movies yes for sure i was said do we think bill murray's character has a co-op in the same building as tom and nicole <laughs> oh absolutely absolutely and i would imagine he's also been to one of those orgies i'm just oh i no. <laughs> seem sort of uh, uh inconceivable that that's not the case um alonzo thank you so so much i'm sorry did anybody have have anything else to to add on eyes wide shut well, I just I think Eyes Wide Shut makes a great double feature with Two for the Road, which is also written by Frederick Raphael and is about a married couple sort of, you know, like coming to terms with their respective pasts and, and you know, infidelities and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, trying to forge ahead, you know, if they can if they can get over, you know, what's gone before. Uh, and they both have, I think, really crisp dialogue and, and great final scenes. Well, great. Okay. There's there folks, you're all sorted. There's your double feature recommendation. 
Um, Alonzo, thank you so, so much for, for coming on with us. The book again is Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. Uh, I'm assuming they can get it uh, at all the places where you get books. And you can get it all the places, and it's a Kindle as well. Yay. All right, great. <laughs> um, and also, oh, and people can follow you on Twitter. Yes, please. At A Duralde, A-D-U-R-A-L-D-E. I'm not as funny as Jason, but I do my best. No, you're, <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, no. Untrue. Um, all right, man. Well, we really do appreciate it. We hope uh, hope uh, the book continues to to sell well every season as well it should. Um, and uh, and thank you again for coming on. Mike. Thanks. Uh, Happy holidays. Thank you. Mike, anything else you want to add before we sign it off? <clears throat> no, man. This was great. I really uh, thank you for coming on, Alonzo. Like, I feel like there's a lot of people that can talk about Christmas movies, but not a lot of people that can do it smart. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. <laughs> so there you have it. That's uh, that's kind of where this thing started, sort of in a roundabout way. Um, so again, Alonzo's books, though uh, mentioned in the show, have yourself a movie, a little Christmas, uh, unmentioned because it did not yet exist. I'll be home for Christmas movies, the Deck the Hallmarks podcast guide to your holiday TV obsession. And of course, he hosts, as we mentioned, a ton of podcasts, including Christmas movie podcast just anyway uh we thought it was fun i wanted to hear it again we thought you might enjoy it so i hope you did and we'll be back next week with a new episode on sunday um and until then thank you mike thank you jason and thank you for listening it was a very 